Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, from The Simpsons to the 1983 film Mr. Mom, pop culture is rife with examples of bumbling fathers. And while it's fun to laugh at these fictional send-ups of charming incompetence, in real life, the Pew Research Center confirms, dads consider parenting just as central to their identities as moms. That's one of the reasons why a growing number of fathers are opting to be stay-at-home dads. Later in the show, Victor Hugo's Notre Dame in Paris, Louisa May Alcott's Orchard House in Concord, Massachusetts, and Forks, Washington, where author Stephanie Meyer's Twilight characters came to life, all locations featured in popular books. We hit the trail with Richard Kreitner, who offers a traveler's guide to literary locations around the world. But first, joining me in the studio are three Boston-area stay-at-home dads. Robbie Samuels, Boston father of two, author and host of the Strategic Networking podcast, On the Schmooze. Welcome, Robbie. Pleasure to be here. Also with me, Dave Cutler of Waltham, Massachusetts, father of four and creator of The Dad Life, a blog about dadhood. Hi, Dave. Hi, Kelly. Nice to see you. And Jarrett Jones from Westwood, Massachusetts, also a father of four, whose blog is called Keeping Up with Mr. Jones. Hello, Jarrett. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have all of you. Well, um, from the website, the National at Home Dad Network, it says, Dads don't babysit. It's called parenting. And I thought that that really sort of said a lot about um, who you all are and the role that you play. In this space every year on this show, we try to look at the evolving roles of fathers. So I was really taken with the number of stay-at-home dads who are now choosing to be at home with their families. I just want to give you some stats, and this is from the Pew Research Center, which was released last week, that the percentage of stay-at-home dads has ticked up from 4% in 1989 to 7% in 2016. And in 2016, 17% of all stay-at-home parents are dads, and that's up from 10% in 1989. That's a pretty significant number increase, I think you would all agree. So let's begin with your stories, how each of you became stay-at-home dads. I'll start with you, Robbie. Well, I left my career in fundraising the year before my son was born to pursue speaking and coaching and writing books and hosting a podcast, all the good stuff that I'm doing now. And so it just made sense that when we realized we were expecting, since we no longer had a double income, that I should you know, step into that role. And I threw myself into it. I don't take on things that I, I can't excel at. So this was not a choice. I had to do really good. And so I researched and I learned and I got all into the baby gear and then the child was born and now I have two of them and I love it. I sort of blend every single day a mixture of 
being home with my kids and building my business. And in fact, they're in the studio control room right now. <laughs> <laughs> because that's life as a stay-at-home dad. So you were 2015 when you became a stay-at-home dad. That's right. All right. Moving over to you, Dave, what year did you decide to go out and why? That was actually this year, at the beginning mm-hmm. of this year. Uh, my wife had previously assumed primary parenting responsibilities. Working in academia, she was able to have the flexibility to mirror the kids' schedules and be able to handle the bulk of the uh, pick-up and drop-off responsibilities and time with the kids in the afternoon. I occasionally had enough flexibility with my work to be able to assist uh, in times of need, but she shouldered most of the load. As she shifted jobs outside of academia and started traveling a fair amount for work, the balance was tipped out of whack a bit, and it was apparent that something needed to change, and it seemed like an opportunity for me to step into that role and be home with the kids more and help support her career. So in January of this year, I, I left my job to be home with the kids, and I'm now consulting in those windows, uh, <laughs> as Robbie mentioned, when there's time available in between parenting duties. Okay. And I'm you, Jared. I've been a stay-at-home dad for four years now since our youngest was born. So right before he uh, was born, we were both working. My wife was commuting in. She works at Boston Children's. Uh, I was commuting south. I was a brand manager at a toy company. And I really liked my job, and it was going well. Then a few months before our child was going to be born, our nanny decided to quit. (laughs) And we thought, well, great. What are we going to do? Well, we'll find another nanny. So we started looking and We thought between my wife's maternity leave, the company I was working for offered parental leave, so I had planned on taking all of that. But then in the midst of all this, my wife got a job opportunity in Oregon, which is where she's from originally. So we decided, well, let's move. And I looked at job opportunities there. I said, well, this doesn't make sense. Are we going to really find daycare for like our baby who's weeks old at the time? And I decided to stay at home. And my wife was thrilled. She's like, I've been wanting you to do this for a long time, but I was never going to say anything because it needed to be your decision so you could feel comfortable with it and feel engaged and excited about it. And so we, we moved there. Unfortunately, the job didn't work out. We ended up moving back to this area, and I still decided to stay at home because it's I feel it's important for us to be there. I'd always had the more flexible job when someone needed to stay home with a sick kid or something like that. That was always me because my wife's job was not that flexible. So it was a natural extension of what I'd been doing anyway. Well, as I said earlier, the idea of stay-at-home dads is sort of fixed in some ways in pop culture. So I wanted to play a clip from the movie Mr. Mom. I'm sure you're familiar with it. This is the 1983 Mr. Mom starring Michael Keaton as Jack Butler. My brain is like oatmeal. I yelled at Kenny today for color on outside the lines. Megan and I are starting to watch the same TV shows, and I'm liking them. I'm losing it. Honey, I know what you're talking about. I've been there myself, all right? Well, if you were so unhappy, why didn't you say something about it? Because I wasn't unhappy. Look, maybe I was a little confused, maybe I was a little frustrated, but I knew what I was doing was important because it means something to raise decent human beings. So I thought, you know, it's a little stereotypical, obviously, but that was a brand new idea uh, in some ways, in a broad sense, when that movie came out. And people were like, huh. But as I said, with the statistics, it's it's changed now. But how do you guys see your role now? How are people accepting you in those roles? And how do you feel comfortable in that role? I'll start with you, Dave. Sure thing. Mm. 
I, I have a lot of comfort in the role. I was a very active father even before making the decision to be a stay-at-home dad and tried wherever possible to have the flexibility to be at their school events and make sure I was at their games and activities and obviously uh, on weekends have that dedicated time with them. It seemed like a natural progression to be able to enjoy this period. The kids will only be young for so long. I definitely, as you're alluding to, encounter some experiences where people are taken aback when I tell them that I'm home with the kids. I take it in stride. I'm very happy to be doing what I'm doing and derive a lot of pleasure out of having that time where I'm both physically and mentally present with the kids and getting to enjoy spending time with them in the afternoon without also the stress of being beholden to a full-time job in that same period. Do you sense that's changing some? Particularly, millennials seem to have a different take on this. Yeah, I think so. I I think stereotypes have evolved. I think one thing that underscores that is when we read older books or watch older movies like Mr. Mom, uh, we watched Mrs. Doubtfire with the kids recently, and their reaction to that was interesting to see. I think for me, the biggest example of that is reading the old Berenstein Bears books, where Mm. the Papa Bear is portrayed as this uh, bumbling idiot who's sort of another child for Mama Bear to parent and makes all the same bad decisions that the kids make. And that really stands out. There's even been instances where the kids make comments about that. So I, I think that speaks to the evolution of people's perceptions of the roles of dads. All right. So, Jared, how about you? I think there's always been times where you meet people who get it and you meet people who don't get it. My parents, my wife's parents were very supportive. I think in popular culture, as I even look at TV and stuff, it's changed how they perceive dads. I remember a while ago, I think it was Cheerios did a commercial about how to dad, and that was their offer to fatherhood. And it was a funny take on this dad that was showed a competent dad doing dad things, just being a parent. And that really resonated with me, and it came out you know, as I was a stay-at-home dad. It's just very different now. Like My youngest son has never known me not at home. My older son, who's seven, we were doing something and talking about the different things that parents do. And I've never said to my son, well, you could be a stay-at-home dad. But he said, oh, you know, my friend, you know, I think his mom stays home or his dad stays home. I don't know. But someone stays home. And it didn't matter to him who stayed home. Uh, He just knew that someone was home when the child got home from school. I think that's very interesting. All right. How about you, Robbie? Well, I think it's a lot easier to be an at-home dad in a city like Boston. And I also recently visited Portland, Oregon. And, like, while I was there for the week, I hung out with, like, six or seven at-home dads throughout the week. It was great. But I think going to a more rural area, they really sometimes feel super isolated. Um, I've gone to the National At-Home Dad Network's uh, at-home dad. They have a home dad con. Mm -hmm. It's about 150 dads in the room. And a lot of them, really, for the first time, this is a place where they feel seen and respected and proud of the work. And so they come in feeling like isolated and alone and they leave really wanting to shout from the rooftops that they're doing this. And then there are the dads who are in these cities that like have camaraderie and community support. And this is where it's been, you know, being part of that, being part of the city dads group, Boston dads in particular has been so great for me. I actually joined Boston dads group before my son was even born. Um, and they were so surprised. They were like, but you don't even have a kid yet. I'm like, I'm not going to have time when the son, when my son's <laughs> born to like figure all this out. I want to get plugged in right away. And so I learned about all of this through the Modern Dads podcast, which is hosted by the two dads that founded the, the City Dads group out of New York City. So I just think for me, like this is all great news. It's very positive. But I also know that it is so dependent on geography and family support. I mean, I'm so glad, you know, you're saying that your family's, you know, supporting you. Mine is too. But I can imagine mm-hmm. a scenario even today mm-hmm. where they're like, you made what choice? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think how dads come to this really varies from choosing it to 
it was the only thing that they could do financially and they kind of now have to kind of get with the program and feel good about it. The other thing is I've discovered that I both get the, wow, you're doing all these things. Here's a cookie. Good for you. <laughs> and also suspect, do you need help putting that diaper on? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm like, how could both those things be yes. true? Like yes. you carrying your child. Good for you. I'm like, yeah, I'm carrying my child. <laughs> it's really interesting because also this this past week was another study uh, criticizing fathers' roles in general, not stay at home or not, saying right. that, you know, just your parenting style is just off, which is very interesting in this context of the conversation of you all being the primary caregivers at home. And half of the fathers surveyed said they'd been criticized for their parenting style or choices. This was a national poll from Michigan C.S. Mott Children's Hospital on children's health, and they dealt with fathers of kids from zero to 13 years of age. Now, some of that criticism came from the mothers, <laughs> let me just say. But overall, 90% of dads said they felt very confident as parents. But to your point, Robbie, said sometimes felt adults in positions of power didn't respect their parental role. Like, you know, they'd show up at doctor's offices or with teachers, and the question would be, well, do you really know? You're nodding. <laughs> yeah, Tell me I, what you yeah. I've certainly experienced that. I, You know, I've taken four kids to the doctor's office and had the nurse, as she's taking us back to the examination room, look at me and say, where's mom today? The assumption being that mom should be taking on that responsibility. But I think getting at what Robbie was speaking to and that perception, I always find it's interesting, this disparity, anecdotally speaking, of when I, for example, have all four kids in the grocery store and one might be throwing a tantrum people will encounter me and say, oh, good for you for taking the four kids, and, and that's incredible. Versus if my wife in the exact same scenario alone with the four kids and somebody's throwing a tantrum will get sort of a judgmental look from someone like, why can't you control your child? Uh, and I, I think it speaks to the, the perceptions of the two different parents. That's right. That's my guest, Dave Cutler, who's a stay-at-home father of four and creator of the Dad Life blog. So I'm curious about, and you mentioned it a little bit, Jared, about your kid's response to you in this role. Jared, you said your kid, one of them at least, is like, eh, you know, either one, it's fine. But are there moments now where the kids actually want mom, or is the, even though you're the primary caregiver? Oh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I think like any child, they trade who their favorite parent is, depending on what they want <laughs> at that time or that week, for example. But there are many times, you know, where mom will only do. It doesn't matter that I'm the one who's there. It doesn't matter that I'm the one who's putting all this work up to this point. Moms are great, and they do wonderful things for kids, too, whether they work outside the home or not. So I think it's just mainly every time, you know, we say family prayers or we talk about it, I always try to talk, well, mom's busy working. She's doing this so that we can be home. Remember how we went and got ice cream last week? We couldn't do that if someone didn't work in the family. It used to be both of us, and now it's just mom. Maybe I'll work again. I don't know. But right now it's important for me to be here with you. And so when they do want mom, all you can do is say, like, you know, I wish she was here, too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be oh, fun if we were all here together. But yeah. right now you got me. So how can I help? It's it's a constant trade-off of, of shifting your priorities. And hopefully you can have a, a spouse or a partner that supports you as you support them. And, and the kids feel comfortable. Yeah. That's my guest, Jared Jones. He's the father of four and the creator of the stay-at-home dad blog, Keeping Up with Mr. Jones. Robbie, what do you think? Well, Things shifted for us uh, as a family. I was home with just one and then with two kids up until about three months ago. We moved. My wife's job changed, and she now works from home during the day but then has to go into work at night. 
and some weekends. So she's now home a lot more, but she needs to actually work. Like I'm still able to be super flexible because it's my business. Mm -hmm. She has people to hold her to account like in the minute. Mm -hmm. And so we have an office where the two of us can, you know, close the door. And so it's always a trade off, like who gets to go in the office and close the door, um, depending on what call we have or who's the meeting with and, you know, what are the kids doing right now? They're only one and a half and three and a half. So, you know, I'm sort of counting the years to when they're both in school. I imagine we'll all get a little more flexible in the, in the daytime part. But it's been actually really great to have her around. But they still sometimes say like, oh, you know, they want mom and it's like mom's working. And sometimes she's working in the house. Sometimes she's working and she's you know, outside of the house. And the same thing for me. I'll go away for a weekend to a conference and they just kind of have to go with it. I think that they're they're so used to the idea of us being around. I, I think this is what they think normal is. And okay. it's never been any other way for them. Dave? For us, it's been a bit of a transition. My wife previously having been the one who was home most with the kids. And that's been an adjustment for, for the children. I think for my daughter most, who's our youngest, she's four years old uh, and is extremely attached to her mother. So it's been funny to watch her try and process this. And so she'll speak a lot about mom traveling and missing mom. But in, in the same breath, she'll talk about, well, when you pick me up, sometimes you bring munchkins with you. And that's not <laughs> something mom would do. So she's, she's navigating the process. And there's pros and cons like there is to everything. And I think she's adjusting to that trade-off. Now, it's interesting. And I'm very high on dad and dads who have a great presence because my dad was. He's long gone. But he took us everywhere. So this is well before anybody's talking about staying at home. He had a job. He worked. and But literally, we spent so much time with him. He was a real presence. And I bring that up because in these studies, the Pew study and then looking at the Michigan one, there are pieces where the dads who are working, and I think this is a phenomenal, the majority of them are saying they feel as though they don't get enough time with their kids. You all are nodding. And that it's really having an impact on their relationships. And they're trying to figure that out about how to work and build the relationships that you all are able to do because you get to spend more time. Can you see the difference from the time that you worked, you're nodding, Dave, from now the time that you're being at home in terms of the change of your closeness with your kids? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That dynamic has shifted tremendously. And I think the example I would most cite is the time where I would occasionally have the flexibility to be working from home and trying to serve two masters and not serving either of them very well. So the difference in my interactions with the kids when I'm you know, making dinner and talking to them about their school day while also with my laptop open and being beholden to my clients. I worked in a client service function, which is relatively inflexible and, and somewhat demanding. And then my frustration level would raise and I would more quickly get frustrated with the kids or not be able to give them the attention that I wanted to. I was physically present, but not mentally present. I think that's the biggest shift. Mm in being focused on being a stay-at-home dad. I've been very transparent with my consulting clients that there's windows of times where I'm just not reachable or available. I want to be dedicated solely to the kids. And that's changed the dynamic. I'm able to give them my full attention. I would say my frustration tolerance level is considerably higher when I'm not already stressed about something that I'm seeing in an email or a chat message from a colleague or client. So that's been the biggest thing for me. I think I did want to just quickly touch on mm. what you said about your dad. Mm. For me, I feel the same way. I aspire to be the dad that my my dad was, and and much like you, this was in a time where it was less frequent for dads to take those active roles. My dad was a, a doctor and then a, a healthcare professional and, and had a biz 
busy work schedule, but would carve out the time. In 1980, when I was uh, in the preschool swim class, there was a program called Swim Moms because moms would take the time out to be there, and it was unheard of for a dad to be there, and my dad was one of the swim moms, which is uh, something we've teased him about over the years. But uh, you know, I, I really respect and admire that he, in a time where that was much less common, was making the effort to do that, and it certainly has stuck with me and is something I'm trying to convey to my kids. Oh, I love that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three Boston-area stay-at-home dads, Robbie Samuels, Dave Cudler, and Jared Jones. In honor of Father's Day, we're discussing the joys and challenges of being a stay-at-home dad. Now, Robbie, picking up on uh, what Dave said, you actually changed a parenting group. It was a mom, moms, and now it's parenting. Yeah, so <laughs> I was organizing a weekly uh, meetup for at-home dads in the Boston area through Boston Dads Group. And that met on Mondays at this Starbucks location in the Fenway area. And on Wednesdays in the same location, a group of moms met. And I lived there. And I was, at the time, desperate to get out of the house with a little kid. <laughs> so I started showing up. And they were very, very friendly. And I'm I'm gregarious. So I was, like, willing to take the risk. And I learned that a lot of the moms were actually expats. They mm. were here because they had a partner working in the Longwood medical area. Hmm. Well, the dads, off many of them were expats who had a spouse or partner who li- who were working in that. So I was like, you all have more in common than even I do. It's not just parenting. <laughs> yeah. Parenting in another country, like all that entails. So I encourage the dads to who, especially with those experiences to come, it took a little while, they started to come and eventually the mom who was running the group at the time changed the name to just be a parents group, which was wonderful because I think there's so many groups that are moms groups. Some of them have dads in it, but they don't change the name. There are groups that say they are welcoming dads, but on the handwritten note, as you're like looking for the room, the handwritten <laughs> note says moms this way, even though the group name says something yeah. about parents. And, you know, most recently, my wife and I started a, organizing a babysitting co-op. And originally, we were a member of a co-op, and the the mom organizing that had a little note like, "Dads can join if necessary." Oh <laughs> wow! Like, <laughs> and you know, my blood pressure rises <laughs> seeing that. So my wife talks to her, and eventually, we end up running our own uh, like geographic separate group mm. within our town, just because there were so many families. And so it's so funny when I'm the lead organizer, and they still want to address, "Hey moms" or "Hey ladies," Interesting. and I'm like. I'm the one emailing you. <laughs> um, so, you know, and my wife and I also organize a monthly baby clothing swap. And so, again, in that role, I'm very visible. And the dads who come in, I always tell them about the dad resources because they just don't know. They just yeah. they kind of stand there next to each other bouncing babies but not talking to each other. And I want to really bridge a lot of that. And I want you to also follow up with a question about the closeness with your child um, because you're the primary care. I have to say my previous job, uh, my career, I was running 25 fundraising events a year, raising a million dollars a year, doing major gift work. On the outside, separate from that, I was running 25 meetup groups a year. I was running a couple of, I had no time for a family. I barely had time for a good relationship. I was in a relationship, so that doesn't mean I was doing good in those relationships. <laughs> and I just couldn't imagine it. Like, you know, just even a few years before I got married and had kids, I just couldn't foresee making the time because I knew that I would do this I didn't know I was going to be an at-home parent, but I knew that I'd be fully committed. My dad, you know, taught me how to golf. I worked in flea markets when I was really little because he had a booth. Like, he kind of – I sold newspapers with him. Mm. And then now I look back. It was amazing. These great experiences that he took me on. I wanted to be like that. Mm-hmm. But I I could never have done it with that, that schedule. And, you know, now it's it's so vastly different. I am present. 
I'm present and I'm also balancing a business. So it's yeah. really interesting. I only have clients that know that I have kids. And so if they occasionally like wander into the frame <laughs> while we're on a Zoom call. Yeah. My my clients like that. Okay. That makes sense. All right. How about you, Jared? Well, when I was working, I always had planned to be an active father. Like my dad was very active in our lives. He worked full time, of course, but, you know, he taught us how to fix things. He taught us how to help others to serve people. He took an active role in fixing dinner and all these other things that, that I learned to do. So I wanted to be like that. And um, I realized, though, as we were leaving this, leading this double commute, double work lifestyle that I didn't really know who my kids were. Uh, I knew they were these little people that took up space in my home and that I needed to feed and keep clean, but I didn't know them as people very well. And I think now, because I don't have to worry about the stress, I, I'm, I give shout outs to anybody who has a stay-at-home dad who can really run a business. Um, there are days I can't get the dishwasher emptied, so I don't think I can hang out a shingle, at least not yet, um, and run my own business. So, But I, I'm really excited to be there, to be present for my kids. I really feel that now I have a sense of how they're they're really funny sometimes and they're they have challenges and they have things that although as an adult we have hindsight we have we know how it's going to play out in most situations that we can see how this is such a huge problem for them and we can help them work through it because we've been there and if I wasn't there it would be the nanny who would help them through it and mm. many people use nannies or babysitters that are excellent and they I'm very fortunate to have a choice to mm. stay at home some stay-at-home dads do not have a choice. It was a great blessing to be there, to be present. Every time my kid is at a crossroads, most of the time I can be there. Yeah. And so it's a great blessing to really get to know them. And they really are becoming, as they get older, very interesting, fun, and, and energetic people. And it's great to be around them. Yeah, let's talk about that choice. Um, here's a film, 2003 uh, film, Daddy Daycare. This is starring Eddie Murphy, and I thought this was interesting. At this point in the film, Daddy Daycare has been closed down because he was running it with some other dads, and Eddie Murphy's character, Charlie Hinton, is explaining to his son that he is returning to his old job. Let me explain it to you like this, man. If Daddy does this right, I can get money for us, and I use that money to take care of the house and to buy food and no clothes and toys for you to play with. I sell all my toys. Why do you want to sell all your toys? If I don't have toys, we don't need money. And you can stay with me. Okay, I think that's just so sweet. <laughs> I, had, I had to play that. But it really does emphasize what a number of you have sort of touched on lightly, which is, you know, you're having a choice. And I believe it was you, Dave, that said, you know, it's quite a privilege and you understand that. You know, people listening to us thinking, wow, I would like to do that, but it's just not something possible that we can make work, even with the juggling that all three of you admittedly are doing. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, there, there are certainly economic realities. It wasn't an option for me to say that I was going to be a stay-at-home dad and not work at all. There's a, a school tuition and bills to pay, and uh, we were a double-income couple, and we're, we're still reliant upon that. Thankfully, thus far, I've been able to carve out enough consulting hours where it's offsetting some of those expenses. But that that's an ongoing balancing act. Uh, I like to say that when we were working parents, we started out, uh, it was a juggling act trying to figure out the balance of our work commitments and our parenting commitments. And 
as my wife's job shifted and she started traveling more, we, it converted to uh, juggling flaming chainsaws. And now that I'm home with the kids, that has stabilized a bit. The, the, the flames have been put out and we've shifted back to candle pins from the chainsaws. Uh, it remains a balancing act. I think like Jared said, people have to make decisions about what works for them logistically, financially, emotionally. And that's uh, some permutation of one or two parents being home and maybe some assistance from a nanny or a babysitter. Right now, for as much as I can, I'm enjoying that time with the kids. I do see it as a privilege, both uh, in terms of the time I have with them and that we're able to make that work from an economic standpoint. But I, I think that will be an, an, an ongoing balancing act that, mm-hmm. that we continually reassess. But for now, I'm, I'm absolutely enjoying it. Either one of you want to add to that? I 100% mm-hmm. agree that it's a privilege. And I this is Robbie speaking. I, I wish that everybody had the opportunity to mm-hmm. do this if they if they chose to. My wife and I, you know, we were making an equal amount of money when we got together and we were living on a college campus. Our housing was covered. Mm -hmm. I mean, so many expenses weren't there. So at first, this wasn't a huge economic burden on our family. But now we've moved to the suburbs. (laughs) We have a nice house with a big backyard and the kids. It's great for the kids. But we have all those new expenses. And it's a real commitment to say, like, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, part of this is having the right partner. My wife deeply believes in what I'm doing, both me being home with the kids, but also the business that I'm growing. And that, you know, I've been speaking professionally for 10 years, but it's only in the last five that I've been able to really dedicate some time to making it, you know, not be a hobby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she believes in that. And I think as flexible as she can be around covering when I need to do something professionally, and I'm as 100% trying to make sure that she gets the time she needs to do what she needs to do for her job, the right partnership, no matter who's home, is mm-hmm. so essential. Moms still carry a lot of that, like the doctor's information mm-hmm. and the kids' teachers. So I try to carry as much as possible, like the kids' doctor's stuff I know. But, you know, today's the last day of school for my kid, and we were putting together gifts last night. No, not we. My wife was writing a note, <laughs> you know. And she said, in the morning, can you make this little, like, art project for the teachers? And I was like, uh, how? What? What do I have to do? Explain this to me. Can you give me a demonstration? You know, so... And I did it, you know, this morning and I took a picture without her even asking me on the front steps because it's the last day of school. But like there's a lot of mental energy that I think moms Mm -hmm. still hold even when they're not at home that are like these little touches. And I'm just like constantly trying to keep up and remember those pieces, too. So the right partnership, I think, helps. Jared, want to add? Sure. It is definitely a privilege. I mean, for us, the, the decision started as a financial calculus and then ended up as an emotional one. You know, we did all the math and. At the time, I was not making enough to cover with you know, paying taxes for the nanny and all these different things. And so it, it, but then after we took the math out of it, well, what if I could find an amazing job that would pay what I needed to make up the difference? Would we still want someone else to be raising our children? It really is, you know, a, a benefit to be home. It, it takes a huge amount of, of mental stress away from my wife to know, even, even when our child gets sick and she knew that I would be the one she's still worried about it. Even when our nanny got sick or hurt herself and she was out for two weeks, even though she knew she helped get some fill-in and then I helped get some fill-in and I would fill in some time, she still was worried. She still was stressing about it all the time. And now that I'm home, she can focus on doing what she does and I can focus on that. And having a good partner is great. There are many, you read in the online dad forums and things like that about many women who kind of don't let their husbands do it their way Mm -hmm. or their partners. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very fortunate in the fact that my wife doesn't question how I do things. She recognizes that it's different. She recognizes that it's not the way she would do it. And sometimes that drives her a little crazy. (laughs) 
<laughs> and sometimes the way she does things is like, well, that's not the way I do it. But we try not to say that to each other because yeah. at the end, are the children safe, happy, fed, clean, which is sometimes we let that slide. But um, <laughs> I love it. You know, the key to having four children is lowering your expectations <laughs> in many aspects of life. But the basics are covered. Well, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if I do this or you do it that way. It matters that the children are taken care of. So it's a great privilege, and I'm, I'm glad that, that I can do it. Um, I love this quote from the website of the National at Home Dad Network. While these men are doing what used to be almost exclusively done by moms, they are not Mr. Mom. They are stay-at-home dads. So I want you to do a quick Ron Robin for me, 30 seconds of what's best about being a stay-at-home dad. I'll start with you, Robbie. I think just being there and watching my kids grow and, like, understand them as, as people um, because they're interesting. And if I wasn't there with them, I wouldn't know what my son was babbling about half the time. <laughs> but if I see the shows with him or read the books with him, I understand what's what's going on in his great imagination he has. And I, I just think that's amazing to watch. All right, Dave. I think it's those little moments. My daughter is my youngest. She's four years old. She's very talkative. My sons report absolutely nothing about their days at school. My my daughter is the complete opposite of that. And she's the first child that I pick up before I go to get her brothers. And in the 10 minutes we're in the car together, I hear reports about her interactions with her friends and her preschool teachers and what she learned that day. And she tells me absolutely everything. And that's something I, I didn't before have the opportunity to, to have that interaction with her. I'm basking in the glory of, of that entertainment, both because it wasn't something I was privy to before and because it's a moment in time that's going to be pretty short-lived before she gets a little older and isn't interested in having those conversations <laughs> with me. So I think that's the biggest thing is is being able to experience those small moments with the kids that I otherwise would have been in the office and, and not have the opportunity to enjoy. Okay. And finally, Jared. I agree that just being there is the, the biggest benefit of being a stay-at-home dad because, you know, there are, everyone has days where it's everything fires in all cylinders, the food is good, the kids eat it, they're clean, you meet every appointment and it's great. And so it's easy to focus on, well, the, the schedule went great today, so it was a great day. But I think on those days when I can take a breath and realize that even if everything went horribly, I'm still home with some pretty great kids. It's a great realization to think that, you know, at the end of the day, we're a family and we're together, and I was able to be here for most of that. Well, I just want to thank all of you. I'm just so happy for all of you and your experiences with your children, and you allowed me for a few minutes to just re-experience my time and experiences with my dad, who just meant so much to me. And I love to see how you guys are interacting with your kids. And happy Father's Day. Thank you very much. <laughs> Robbie Samuels is a full-time dad of two, as well as an author and the host of the strategic networking podcast On the Schmooze. Dave Cutler is a stay-at-home father of four and creator of The Dad Life blog. And Jared Jones is a father of four and is the creator of the stay-at-home dad blog, Keeping Up with Mr. Jones. Coming up, Derek Walcott, the Nobel Prize-winning poet, once said, I read, I travel, I become. No doubt Walcott would have appreciated an opportunity to combine reading and travel in a way that highlights books. It's what inspired author Richard Kreitner to write his new book, appropriately titled Booked, A Traveler's Guide to Literary Locations Around the World. Around the World Through Book Locations, that's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. 
And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. I'm definitely one of those readers who wants to see the places where my characters live or where my favorite authors dreamed up my beloved characters. So I wanted to see the bell tower of Notre Dame, Walden Pond, where Henry David Thoreau sought nature and solace. Still on the bucket list, a trip to Spain to follow the path made by Don Quixote. Author Richard Kreitner assumed there would be more like me when he wrote Booked, a traveler's guide to literary locations around the world. Kreitner's travel guide frames wanderlust through the lens of an avid reader. Just in time for summer travel planning, author Richard Kreitner joins me from the NPR studios in New York City. Welcome to Under the Radar, Richard Kreitner. Thanks so much for having me, Callie. Oh, I'm Happy delighted to, to have you. What a great book. It's Thank beautiful. You. Let's just say that. That's the beginning. I, you didn't take the photos, but they're pretty good, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> yeah, very beautiful. A lot of blue skies. I know. So let's talk about the motivation and the inspiration behind Booked, A Traveler's Guide to Literary Locations Around the world. Why do this book? Um, well, I've been doing this my entire adult life, you know, traveling to places from, from books that I love, from my first road trips across the country during college on Amtrak trains, you know, stopping in Denver and saying hello to some of the important beat places. I took a road trip after college with my then-girlfriend, now-wife. Uh, we stopped in New Orleans, and I read, of course, Confederacy of Dunces, and on and on. I've done that now, you know, on multiple continents and many countries. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm like you just said, whenever I finish a book that I love very much, I want to check out the place where it is set because I want to imagine the characters there or I want to imagine myself, perhaps even as, as a writer, would I have described it in the same way? Does it match up with my own experience of that place? There's some kind of fascination that we have as readers, as travelers, with exploring this boundary between imagination and reality. That's sort of the backstory on me. Out of that fascination, when I started, you know, writing articles and, and making things, I made a map for Atlas Obscura, the website on geography and quirky history stuff, a few years ago, which was a map of 12 American road trip books. And I very methodically, it took like six months, it's kind of a crazy project, underlined every place that was mentioned in books like On the Road by Kerouac and Wild by Cheryl Strayed and um, Roughing It by Mark Twain. Twelve books, you know, spanning the centuries and mapped each location. So you could click around Salt Lake City, say, and see how Mark Twain described it a hundred years before Jack Kerouac described it. Also John Steinbeck and things like that. And I, it was a passion project, but it went crazy viral, which was kind of strange. I wasn't really expecting that and um, was picked up all around the world. So the publisher of this book, Black Dog and Leventhal, came up with the idea, and then they were looking for a writer, and they found me. And I think it was, you know, dare I say, the perfect match. Uh, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed doing this book. Well, it shows. I'd love to know your first place that you would consider kind of on this journey, even though you weren't on the journey to write the book at the time. You were just doing your life. <laughs> Well, I think the first place it would be the, and I'm not, I'm not only saying this because it's a Boston radio station, but would be the Makeway for Ducklings monument, or if you want to call it that statue, in uh, Boston Common, which was one of my favorite children's books that I was reading uh, when I was a kid. And I remember on an early trip to Boston, I must have been five or six going to that, and, and I was, you know, very excited about that, you know, which is a great book. 
the the book includes uh, you know high literature and low literature, adult stuff and and children's stuff. Yeah, I was so gonna that say I, that when I read that in the book, I thought, oh, I would never have thought about because you know when you live here, it's a big deal when the ducks come out and the tours mm-hmm. start again, and you forget actually, which may be your point in writing this, that it it is connected to a book. You know that that yeah, the, that the absolutely. ducks and the tour, you know, all of that's a, a part of the book. So yeah, well, I tell an interesting story in the book about how there's an an exact replica of the ducklings statue in Moscow, and it was part of this sort of high stakes Cold War diplomacy. In 1989, um, uh, Barbara Bush gave a a replica of the ducklings to uh, Gorbachev's wife as part of some kind of I'm not sure exactly what was going on an arms control treaty. Or something, so you can now see the same the same ducklings in Moscow. Did it have the impact that she wanted, or do you do you know that fine detail? I'm not sure. I mean, the Cold War ended. I don't know if I would. Uh, <laughs> well, we're not going to attribute it to the ducks. <laughs> I wouldn't credit the ducklings. No. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that the people who have found this book have much, very much enjoyed is that you have uh, the kind of interesting detail, um, little stories like that at each location. So it's it's more than a travelogue book. It is a travelogue book. So you could actually plan travel um, by using mm-hmm. the book. But it has fleshed out with the stories, the history, the culture. Sometimes you get down to granular level and, and tell us where the good hotels are <laughs> as well. <laughs> so uh, that was a part of the plan as well as you started off uh, doing this. Were you thinking it's important to have a kind of a holistic way to make a mark on the map of these literary locations? That's exactly right. I wanted I wanted people to be be able to use it in two ways, both actively and passively. So actively to plan their own trips, you know, to get ideas um, to places that they want to go where either they have read the work in question that is set there or perhaps they haven't. They want to go there and read it and also passively. So you can just sit in your armchair on your couch and travel in your in your mind. And so it's not it's not, you know, I mentioned a few hotels, but it's not really, you know, turn three steps to the left and you'll see a plaque. <laughs> Um, because, you know, I, I haven't actually been to all of these places. So I, I, a lot of it is research and, and sort of vicarious travel, both for me and, and hopefully for the reader as well. So one of the places that I know you have been that is also in New England is in uh, New Bedford. And that piece is called Finding Freedom in 1840s New Bedford. And the references to Moby Dick by Herman Melville and the narrative of a life of Frederick Douglass. And it's, so it's a story about Douglass as well. I want you to read some excerpts from that piece. But I thought uh, before you started, I'd have an excerpt of Frederick Douglass's speech because people are thinking, oh, Frederick Douglass, who is he? Abolitionist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> made his mark uh, all over New England and, of course, across the country and, you know, toward the end of his life uh, was, you know, a statesman, um, one of the, the few black folks that had been to the White House. And it was really somebody that, that, that pushed uh, for desegregation at that point and education and actually women's rights. People don't know that about him. Sometimes they don't know that about that. But anyway, just to get a feel of Frederick Douglass, here's an excerpt from his speech, A Plea for Free Speech in Boston, given on June 8, 1880, and it's read by actor Ossie Davis. It is just as criminal to rob a man of his right to speak and hear as it would be to rob him of his money. I have no doubt that Boston will vindicate this right. But in order to do so, there must be no concessions to the enemy. When a man is allowed to speak because he is rich and powerful, it aggravates the crime of denying the right to the poor 
and the humble. So that was again Ossie Davis reading the words of Frederick Douglass. And the story of Frederick Douglass, a young Frederick Douglass, came together with the story of uh, Moby Dick in the section in your book called Finding Freedom in 1840s New Bedford. So I want you to read from page 10, which is about Herman Melville, and then we'll have a piece about Frederick Douglass. Sure. Herman Melville's name will forever be attached to New Bedford, where, without any other job prospects, he stopped briefly in late 1840 before shipping out on his first whaling voyage. Melville would immortalize the town's grimy but spirited atmosphere in the early scenes of Moby Dick, when the narrator, Ishmael, arrives from New York and has trouble finding a place to stay. Quote, Such dreary streets, blocks of blackness, not houses on either hand, and here and there a candle like a candle moving about in a tomb, Melville wrote. After wandering through the town, Ishmael finds an inn, but he has to sleep beside the good-natured harpoon-bearing cannibal Queequeg. The next morning, before heading out, Ishmael takes in a sermon at the Whaleman's Chapel, where plaques on the wall name men lost at sea. The preacher climbs a rope ladder into his pulpit, shaped like the bow of a ship, and lectures the sailors about the biblical story of Jonah and the whale. And here, shipmates, is true and faithful repentance, not clamorous for pardon, but grateful for punishment. The Whaleman's Chapel in Moby Dick was based on a real church called the Seaman's Bethel. It still exists as part of the New Bedford Whaling National Historical Park. Yet there's one notable difference between how it looks today and how it looked in Melville's time. Now there really is a ship-shaped pulpit like the one Melville made up for the novel, a striking instance of life imitating art. All right, so that's my guest, Richard Kreitner. He's reading from his book, Booked, A Traveler's Guide to Literary Locations Around the World. That was a piece about Herman Melville in New Bedford. And now here's a piece about Frederick Douglass in New Bedford at around the same time. A major stop on the Underground Railroad, New Bedford had the largest percentage of black residents anywhere in the Northeast, and many were known to be escaped slaves. After fleeing Maryland by rail car in 1838 and arriving in New York by ship, Frederick Bailey married Anna Murray, a free black woman who had helped him escape. From there, they sailed to Newport, and then continued on to New Bedford, where the couple was taken in by friendly abolitionists. Quote, we now began to feel a degree of safety, he recalled in his autobiographical narrative, and to prepare ourselves for the duties and responsibilities of a life of freedom. It was around the breakfast table the morning after their arrival that Frederick and Anna decided to change their last name to Douglas. It was suggested by one of their hosts, who took it from the name of a warrior in The Lady of the Lake, a poem by Sir Walter Scott. Douglas's first move was to visit the wharves at the harbor, where he was astounded by the impressive array of ships and the fabulous displays of prosperity, surprising to him, for he had inadvertently, quote, imbibed the notion that there could be no wealth without slaves. That's my guest, Richard Kreitner. He's the author of Booked, A Traveler's Guide to Literary Locations Around the World. And I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. So did you know all of that before you started, uh, you know, putting together this book? Did you know that they had, you know, there was an overlap? Or or did you find that out afterwards because you realized New Bedford would just be a rich location? I actually, this is one of the few that I actually did know a lot about beforehand, and I'm really glad you picked this up because it's one of my favorite entries in the book. Um, I actually discovered this sort of very organically, not by doing any intentional research, but my wife, who's an English teacher, was teaching um, Frederick Douglass, and I was reading Herman Melville at the same time. Um, I'm very interested in 19th century U.S. history. I was reading about um, abolition and, and, and all things like that. And she was teaching Frederick Douglass, and we sort of realized all of a sudden that they were both in New Bedford at around the same time, though we had never heard of anything like that. So we sort of dug into it. We even went up there and took a really excellent walking tour around the town. 
And there's a very, very fascinating historical backstory behind all of this because because New Bedford was such a major whaling port, which is, of course, you know, what Melville is writing about, that meant that there were people coming in from all around the world, a lot of Portuguese sailors, people of all races and, and ethnicities and, and whatnot. And that meant that it was a bastion of freedom um, at the time. And so that's what made it an appealing refuge for an escaped slave like, like Frederick Douglass. So they were there for related reasons, very different, of course, but both sort of partaking of this atmosphere of freedom. And you can really feel that in the in the streets um, there today. You know, of course, it's different, like all places are after a century and a half. Um, but it's a, it's a place of great wealth, and you can kind of imagine the uh, very vibrant and colorful uh, town that it must have been then. Yes, um, absolutely. I love that section as well. Now, I should point out that this is a global guide. I know we've spent some time in uh, talking about locations in New England, and you've grouped uh, kind of the book locations together by regions. Um, did you start off knowing exactly which pieces and which region you were going to pick up, or did it, you know, kind of uh, flow in some way? And I don't know how, some, some ser- serendipitous flow that you, you got uh, as you were piecing this together. Well, perhaps a serendipitous flow. It was, it was a combination. You know, the, the exact – I knew I wanted to cover the entire world so and, and every, every region in it. It's about 40 percent American locations, which just reflects my own knowledge of geography and literature both um, and interest. But there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of other places in here as well. And the specific locations that I picked was sort of a combination of things that I'm interested in personally, um, things that friends told me about might be good for the book – and places that I thought that readers might be interested in, even if I personally um, either haven't read the work or, or, you know, I'm not that interested in it. Um, but or And also places that I wanted to learn more about. Um, so it was a combination of, of a lot of different things. I also, as I said, I wanted to get, you know, a large diversity, both in terms of uh, highbrow, lowbrow, you know, race and gender and geography. Yes, I note that um, one of the things that I think is it's great in the book that you have a focus on some locations that have multiple literary connections, like, you know, Brooklyn, where you live. But there's, right. there's a lot going on. You know, a tree grows in Brooklyn is the one that comes to mind, but there are many others um, that you point to. Um, and then there are some ones that I think all of us would be interested in, like Monroeville, Alabama, um, mm-hmm. where To Kill a Mockingbird was set. And I think there's probably a lot more interest now that there's a play about um, To Kill a Mockingbird uh, on Broadway as we speak. So, you know. Well, that's a very interesting um, (laughs) story because there was always a play about To Kill a Mockingbird. And this is what I I discussed in the entry there, that there was a play and it was performed in the courthouse where To Kill a Mockingbird, the major trial at the end, is set. Um, And it was sort of a controversial play because it was not totally um, endorsed by Harper Lee herself while she was alive. Um, and she, she sued them at one point because they were uh, in, infringing on her trademark, I believe, or the, or the bookstore at the courthouse was. Um, so that's, that's one example. And they, they now have plans, pardon me, to, um, to, to massively expand the amount of tourism that goes on there. They're going to rebuild her, uh, Harper Lee's childhood home, which was once destroyed, and sort of a, a controversial plan. So that one, that one interested me as one of several places that I mentioned in the book where the author's legacy is not straightforward. It's contested um, in a way that evokes themes that are themselves represented in the work, which I think is just a very interesting uh you know, situation. It is. Now, here's the courtroom scene from the 1962 movie adaptation of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. 
Now, gentlemen, in this country, our courts are the great levelers. In our courts, all men are created equal. I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and of our jury system. That's no ideal to me. That is a living, working reality. And again, that was from the 1962 movie adaptation of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. I wanted to play that, Richard Kreitner, because um, your focus is books, but movies have been made about some of these books, and that seems to me to drive interest. So you have not only um, Monroeville, Alabama, but also Forks, Washington, where Twilight, the series about the the vampires and um, the fraught relationship between Bella and Edward was set uh, by Stephanie Meyer. So so what's been the impact of that? Are you seeing that uh, those are places that you particularly wanted to highlight because people are looking for those? Really, they want to see them and see if the movie uh, stood up to the book, if you will, (laughs) in terms of description. Right. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. I wonder if people go to these places to see how the book measures up to the film um, and, and how each of them measures up to real life. Uh, I'm not so sure. I mean, I, you know, full disclosure, I've not read or seen Twilight. <laughs> I dipped into it, you know, for this for the purposes of this. Um, You're not this into vampires, Richard. <laughs> I I could be convinced. I could be convinced. <laughs> I think I came. A, a I have too many real life too, ones too to early. deal with to read the book about it. But anyway, I digress. You were saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I well, I, I I picked it for the for the, its um, connection to the book. But there are definitely other um, places from books that are in this. Uh, excuse me, in booked um, that were also in films like Memoirs of a Geisha and The Whale Rider in New Zealand. Um, but I didn't, I didn't pick them specifically because they were in in films. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we can't forget uh, Chatsworth, House, Chatsworth House, which was the inspiration for Pemberley in Pride and Prejudice, which I could watch 1,500 times and read 1,500 more times. So there you go. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you. Is this a chicken and egg situation? So will most people know the books that you mention here and go to the locations driven by that? Or have you seen people read about the locations and then seek out the books from which the locations are described? I really hope that the book is used in, in both ways, you know, so that you can, you can um, if you've already read the book and you never thought, hmm, that there's actually a place where that is set. Like, for instance, here in New York City, um, The Catcher in the Rye, a lot of people, you know, millions and millions and millions of people have read that book. But they don't really think about the carousel, for instance, at the very end where Holden and his, is watching his sister go round and round and try to reach for the golden ring. You know, that, there's a real carousel. It happens to be run by... Um, I believe the Trump Organization actually now, um, right in the park there. But you can you can go visit it. You know, there's an important scene at the Museum of Natural History. So I think that there, I hope people will use it to be inspired to travel to places where their favorite books are set that they wouldn't have otherwise thought to do so, and also um, looking for a destination and then go read the book. You know, th- that's what I'm always doing is uh, choosing a place to go. For instance, um, two years ago, my wife and I went on a honeymoon to Crete the mm. island off, off the coast of Greece. And I found a book that was set there um, in World War II called The Cretan Runner. Mm. Fantastic book. Um, and, and read it. And uh, I just like that sort of um, experience of, of, you know, listening to music. You can get a little manic, but listening to music <laughs> set in the place where you're traveling to and, and all that. 
Uh, so I hope people use it, you know, in both ways. Well, I have a location for you for your next go-round. It should be Martha's Vineyard because the great late Philip Craig did a series of mysteries which have all mm. kinds of details about the island, and I actually read the books to find the places on the island that are real. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, cool. so it's it's a it's a wonderful thing. Um, Will you update this book, or you have more to do on it, or is this I it for know. a while? We'll, we'll see. I certainly think that there's, you know, I certainly left a lot on the table. Um, I can see going in a lot of different directions with it. Uh, somebody mentioned, I think, in like um, a review online that they could see it as sort of a crowdsourced website mm. uh, where, you know, for instance, the, the example you just cited, you could, you know, post that for people's, um, you know, edification and whatnot, um, which I think is a good idea. I can also... Uh, see it in other ways, so we'll see. I got you know booked New England. You can you could branch out in <laughs> in, in ways like that. If it, <laughs> any any New England publishers listening, or you could just do booked uh, part two. <laughs> right, absolutely booked again. You booked. Oh, I love that. I, I rebooked, I, I, overbooked. I, it's flowing. <laughs> the ideas are flowing. <laughs> I, I I suggest that you definitely uh, take that up. Well, I am oh, I, I'm fanatical about books and. Um, I once booked a flight so I could get a layover in Denver uh, in order to go to the famous bookstore. So you can imagine my thrill about sure. a tattered <laughs> cover. Yes. yes. Yeah. Sure. Yes, Absolutely. I did that. People thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, I've made pilgrimage to pilgrimages to Oxford, Mississippi. You know, to go to the Oxford bookstore. To Faulkner. Yeah, that's right. Have uh, you been to, <laughs> to Faulkner's house? Yep. Yeah, yeah, and and the bookstore yep. there. Everything. So, um, you know, it it it. I think it adds something, and it particularly if you're a reader, and to your point earlier, even if you're not, I think you can be uh, persuaded to see uh, the beauty and um, and also the imagination that was at work when you see the place from which the inspiration sprung. <laughs> right. Well, as you say, even if you're not a reader, if you're only a traveler, I think that reading a book set in that place while you're traveling there, if even if you otherwise would not have thought of that or had heard of the author, can add sort of a rich layer of experience to travel. Yes. Um, you know, a way to sort of en enliven the experience. So last word, um, what do you want readers to take away? Um, I think a few things. One, I think that, as I just said, you know, that, that reading can enhance travel and travel can enhance reading um, in both directions. And then thirdly, I read, I read about this in the introduction a little bit, building off a of Eudora Welty essay. I think that literary travel can actually be sort of a force for good in the world, which which might sound sort of outlandish. Um, but I think that the idea of unmediated cross-cultural communication, where you read, you know, an important work by a Japanese author or somebody from elsewhere in the world, a different walk of life, can really open your eyes to how we are all different, we are all the same, um, and just what it, what it means to be human. So I hope that people will have that experience, not only from my book, but just from, you know, the experience of, of reading books and traveling to those places. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think literary tourism can be a force for good in the world. Well, I, your book is certainly a force for good. I enjoyed it very much. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. Richard Kreitner is the author of Booked, A Traveler's Guide to Literary Locations Around the World. It is available in bookstores and online now. Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. 
please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineer is Doug Sugertz. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.